Hi, and welcome to Unapologetic Women, a podcast about current affairs, culture, politics, life, and how we got here, brought to you by Tony and Sorsha. These are unscripted conversations about the things that we care about, not the things that we're experts in. Oh, and there's probably going to be some swearing. Hey, Sorsha, how's it going? Hello, I'm all right. I'm recovering from some type of head cold, cough situation, so... I sound really delightful today. I don't know. I think some people might like the smoky voice. <laughs> no? Yeah, me? sure. The smoky voice, but maybe not the blowing of the nose. That's okay. probably not as cool. No? <laughs> Is that a warning for everyone listening in? Just, you know. Yes. She's, she's still surviving, but she's barely there. There might um, be some, some throat cleaning and <laughs> nose blowing throughout this lovely episode, folks. And on that note, join us for what is going to be a great conversation. I'm, you know what? It's funny. I'm packing up. I'm packing up, which is crazy. So, well, I know you've been recovering from sickness. I feel like I'm starting to get sick because I've been running around the house, packing up, heading to Vancouver right after we actually record this episode, which is fun. And it's a bit weird packing up your whole life into three suitcases for a month. I mean, my whole life. Am I kidding? That's wild. I also love Vancouver, so I'm very excited for you to, to I've explore. Never I've never, ever been. So if there's anyone out there, actually, who's got great tips on what to do in Vancouver, hit us up. I've never been, and I'm delighted to discover a whole new continent. Yes. But we're not here to talk about Vancouver today. We wanted to talk about politics, something that you, that's been a big part of your life. And I wanted you, Sorsha, to help me understand what the hell is going on in US politics specifically. So the question that I had, that I've had for a while, and I, I guess I'm just going to come out and ask you, Sorsha, is help me understand why and how Bernie Sanders, who's obviously one of the Democratic candidates, has amassed like such a huge following. And why is he surging right now? Like, what's what's the deal with Bernie? Yeah. Okay, so I I think I need to name my own personal bias um, going into this, which is that I am not, I don't know Bernie Sanders personally, but I'm not a fan of his campaign. I'm not a fan of of how his supporters treat others. And I'm also not a fan of this idea of my way or the highway. So there's my my prefix. (laughs) And also my, my own personal allegiances with another candidate out there, Elizabeth Warren. Love, love, love her. She gave me my first opportunity in American politics. So there's there's some biases yeah. that come with my answers. Tony, so I think when you think about Bernie Sanders, we have to think back to the you know 2015, well, 2014, 2015 election period with, with him and Hillary and, you know, to a very lesser extent, Mr. O'Malley, the three, the three Dem candidates that went up in 2016. And Bernie Sanders had this unique opportunity in 2016 to position himself as anti-establishment. And even though he was, you know, running on a Democratic ticket, he was not the wanted or the the chosen candidate by the Dems, which I think allowed for a lot of people to self-identify with that position, right? Of like, I'm an outsider. I'm here to make change. I'm here to make that impact. And, you know, personally, a lot of the actual policies that Bernie stands for, I agree with, right? Like universal healthcare, universal pre-K, forgiveness of debt for student loans, because student loans in this country are ridiculous, right? Like, yeah. There's a lot of his policy standpoints that make sense and, and lean extremely left, right? When you think of it in the US 
lens very isolated to us because if you take this outside, if you put this into Europe, these are very normal <laughs> yeah. concepts that that people understand and live daily, like universal healthcare, NHS, Absolutely. hello, Canada, hello. Yeah, um, not enough so, to run with just those policies. No, and you know it's completely U.S. focused. So. Yeah. You know, he has this very much so left leaning policy standpoint, and that attracted a a large cohort of folks within the Democratic Party that had felt that the Democratic Party was not being uh, extreme enough, that Obama had kind of had paved the way to what could have been a much more dramatic undertaking for healthcare in particular. So like Obamacare, yes, they got a couple of hurdles through. But a lot of people in the left wing of the Democratic Party felt that that not enough was done. And so healthcare has always been kind of a founding issue in where Bernie Sanders was able to kind of really own and navigate this left mm. wing of the party. And we see folks like AOC who are also kind of in that left wing of the party that are able to, you know, endorse and, and kind yeah. of jump on the Bernie bandwagon or Bernie train to move their own policies and what they're doing forward. Yeah. I think the appeal in particular with youth, yeah. and I hate saying the word youth, but he is, he's from Vermont. He has historically always been a little bit hippie, we'll call it, a little bit outside yeah. of the, the general spectrum. And that's just, that's an easy message for a young professional or someone who is of the age of 18, between 18 and 30, who are still trying to figure out who they are. And what they yeah. are trying to do in the world. And he has a great message of, I'm here, that join me. We have a movement. We have a community that we're going to build around. And people want to be a part of a community that is seemingly very easy to engage with, as opposed to the democratic institutes that have existed yeah. for years and years and years and are very hard to join in, right? When you look at party politics, as opposed to movement politics, yep. it's very different and harder to engage with party politics than it is movement. So I hope that answers your question. It does, and I've got two thoughts from that. Am I correct then in understanding that he he has or still is positioning himself as anti-establishment? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So is there a parallel that you can join that you can draw there between Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn, who I can't help but draw a parallel, but I might be misleaded here of he also positioned himself as an outsider, a backbencher, anti-establishment. He's also on in the older um spectrum, but attracting the youth, as you call them, or the younger voters. Like, is there a parallel to draw, or is that just sort of more of a naive position to take? I think there's absolutely a parallel to draw. Jeremy Corbyn, the thing that strikes me with that, right, is like, and I don't know Jeremy Corbyn's net worth, but like yeah. uh, Bernie Sanders has a net worth of over, I think it's like three million or something along those lines, and okay. was questioned recently at the debates around the multiple homes that he as yeah. an individual has, right? Like, I don't see Jeremy Corbyn actually yeah. as Bernie in that lane, because Jeremy Corbyn genuinely gets on the, on the night bus and gets on yeah. the H10, right? Like he... Yeah is actually actively participating in that. But the way that the U.S. politics infrastructure works is such that Bernie Sanders actually couldn't do that. Like, he could not just get on a train without there being a risk factor involved in, is, is he, will he be attacked? Like, he has his yeah. own actual security around him. And so there's definitely a parallel to be drawn with policies, with 
pushing themselves as an outsider, ensuring that healthcare for everyone is institutionalized. Like there's a lot in policies, but I think as individuals who show up for like the public arena, they're very different. Yeah, that makes sense. And you mentioned something right, right from the outset that I thought was interesting is you, you said, I don't agree with his campaign structure. Talk to me a little bit about that. Like what, what makes his campaign structure different to some of the other candidates? Yeah. And so I think to, to really go into this, right, when you think about a campaign infrastructure, there's a lot of different facets and it really depends at the level that you're running at, right? So when you're thinking about a presidential campaign, there's a lot of pieces that go into that. And so let me just like take you through that. So you have your field staff, you're like on the ground people who are being led by your field director, your data director. Are those staff members or are those volunteers? So your field staff, you're going to have actual staff members, and then you'll have volunteers that feed in to actually do the work. But when you're thinking about your field and your ground game, these are the people who are actually out on the doors, speaking to people, phone banking people, hosting events, Mm -hmm. you name it, right? That's your actual field game. Then you have your your communications team. That's going to be your content stream. That's going to be digesting your policy, putting it into like, you know, tidbits that people can understand. That's your memes. That's social media driven. That's your email blast communications. Like all of that then lives in your comms team. Yeah. Then you have a fundraising team, right? Obvious outcomes there. You hit your money targets. There's a lot that feeds into that, but you've got small dollar donors. You've got uh, large dollar donors. You've also got pack money, et cetera. Then you have your policy team, right? They are working with you on what specific policies, what are the standpoints in these different areas that you care about. Then you've also got obviously a legal team. There's no need to go in and and dig into that. (laughs) We all know what that is. And then there's like mechanisms within each of these teams or departments, whatever we want to call them, that are specific for states, right? So like you'll have state outreach and state organizers. You'll also have union organizers within that. You'll have political directors who their job is to engage with important policymakers within whatever state they're responsible for to ensure that the endorsements are coming through. Same in the union bucket, same in the opinion leader bucket, right? You know, that can be from local chamber of commerce directors, executive directors to reverends and priests and people who are basically, you know, corner pillars of communities. That's kind of your stakeholder, basically, management team. And that exists in nearly all states. It really depends on what the polling, right? So polling is another component of this. Like, what states should we put our resources in? And we heard this in 2016, right, where Hillary Clinton didn't make any engagement in Michigan. And that, in my opinion, was a massive mishap. And a lot of people's opinion was a massive mishap. But that was what the data was telling them was to disregard Michigan, not to go there. It was a waste of time. We all know the the end result of that story. So there's like the base infrastructure. Yep. Then you have these volunteers or super volunteers that want to engage with people on your behalf, whether or not you've condoned it. That can be digitally, that can be in person, that can actually be showing mm. up and doing a field canvas. And there's a cohort of what's happened with Bernie Sanders' campaign. I'm sure folks in the U.S. at least will know this, but Ber- Bernie Bros. Yeah. And a Bernie Bro is a is an archetype of an individual that commonly is extremely bullish yep. on social media, can be very attacking of yep. other candidates that are seemingly actually aligned 
actually something just just broke earlier today with Bernie Sanders folks. People had said Bernie's team had come out and said that it was Russian bots that were actually doing Mm -hmm. this. And it came out that it wasn't. It was actually Bernie bros that were being ignorant around Pete Buttigieg's sexuality had been making comments and remarks about Amy Klobuchar and Elizabeth Warren's facial appearance. And it's actually come out that it was the Bernie bros. This is not his paid staff. Let me just be super clear with that. These are people who feel a part of this movement and their personal responsibility is to impact the other candidates. However, in my opinion, this type of style and communication and where you engage people comes from the top. The leadership style of the campaign management of the candidate themselves and how they treat people and show up and interact with each other is then actually just like it's it's absorbed by the people out there. It comes from like, it comes from the top. And that's what I have seen in his campaign infrastructure in both 2016 and right now in 2020, we're seeing it showing up in a negative way that impacts people. And I'll, I'll share a personal experience, Tony, and I know you know this, but in 2016, I was at the New Hampshire Democrats. Uh, they Every uh, four years, they have a massive event for each of the Democratic candidates coming in for presidential. And we were there and Hillary Clinton had got on stage to give her, you know, mm-hmm. stump speech, whatever. And a table across from me, there was a young woman, mid-20s, and she decided to take it upon herself to berate Hillary Clinton on stage, shouting at her that, why should I vote for you just because you have a vagina? Yeah. And those types of comments were everywhere in New Hampshire in 2016. And, and as everyone knows, Hillary was obliterated by Bernie Sanders in the Democratic primary in, in New Hampshire. Like same day voting was a massive factor for him. He targeted students. He targeted areas of New Hampshire that had high populace of young people and got them to register and vote on the same day. But that type of engagement when you're out on the field and you're canvassing for your candidate and you bump into someone who's canvassing for their candidate, normally, like in all my years of doing this, it's a camaraderie of like, yeah. oh my God, like it's so cold out here right now. It's negative three and we're knocking these doors, like yeah. props to you. But in 2016, it was a like, excuse my language, but fuck Hillary. We're here for Bernie. Bernie's the one. Bernie's the cha- the game changer. Like you guys are wasting your time. Like that was the the negativity and abrasiveness that you were met with. And so, yeah, that, that's for me is why I have that personal, like, I can't get on board with it. It's fascinating hearing you share all of that. Again, there's a parallel with, I think, a little bit with the Jeremy Corbyn volunteers as well. But what's, what was interesting is I just recently read, and it's going to be a bizarre parallel, but you know, bear with me. Just recently read the book by Ben Horowitz, who's a venture capitalist, um, founded A16G, and he wrote a book recently, What You Do Is Who You Are, and it's all about culture and where culture comes from. And if it's intentional, it's unintentional. And there's something there of what you were saying, this Bernie bro culture came from somewhere. So it's just fascinating to me of what does this tell us about Bernie Sanders as a leader? Does it actually even tell us anything? And I wonder what are the things, my brain can't help but question what are the things that are happening inside his campaign? that these volunteers are hearing and taking and saying, okay, this is okay. This, this is, this is what we represent. Oh, I heard this. So this must be the things or the culture that they want us to represent on the streets. And then the part of me is also, well, should he and can he be held responsible for all of these people? And that sounds a bit like a cop out, but be held responsible for people that he hasn't hired. It's an, there's an interesting back and forth there. 
Well, and uh, I think it was a CNN. Someone actually pointedly asked him, asked, asked him that question, Tony, and his response was, I can't be held responsible huh. for people and their actions online. And I believe there's been a retraction made, right, of that since then. But that was like his his first immediate reaction was no, free speech. People, this is people are allowed to do what they want to do on behalf of whatever the candidate is. I don't endorse it, yeah. right? Like, and that fine. You're coming out and you're saying you publicly don't endorse it. Something still needs to change yeah. when people out in the field who are going door to door are feeling attacked by Bernie Sanders' canvases. And the better question, and it sounds like, is not, should you be held responsible? What do you think do you in, What do you think about this? And rather, what is happening inside your campaign that is clearly, this is where the, this reaction is stemming from, like the, the, this culture is stemming from somewhere. So what is that? Um, yeah, there's, there's an interesting, it sounds like the question to be asked is different than what we would initially think. Yeah. And I think the other thing to look at, I read uh, with a grain of salt here, New York Post article yesterday around AOC and the headline was AOC condemns Hillary Clinton and like has backlash around who she was and what she is because Hillary has come out in the new documentary she's doing around saying, you know, Bernie Sanders and giving her side of the story from, from 2016 in AOC, the video, it's literally like she's basically saying, like, you know, Hillary didn't show up in Michigan, like she mm. wasn't the person that should have run, blah, blah, blah. It's not as as demonizing as that clickbait title uh, yeah. makes it out to be. But she is a massive endorser of Bernie Sanders yeah. and someone that brings a big cohort of people from New York that back him. And if that's the example of your ambassadors of your campaign, where they're going out and talking shit, for lack of a better word, about other candidates or other women in particular in this race, then of course your volunteers will be like, well, AOC's doing it. Like, I need to defend Bernie as well. Right? Like, you, you think back, what was it, four or five, I don't know, maybe a couple months ago now, when Elizabeth Warren had said that Bernie Sanders, in a private meeting, said that a woman couldn't be president. And we watched him on national television lie yeah. about that, or in my opinion, lie about that. Lying about that. And that's a perfect segue into the other big question that's been trotting in my head. I don't know if that's even an expression, but not an expression. Um, <laughs> seeing your facial expressions there, not an expression that's been um, dancing around in my brain for Ooh. the last. Yeah, let's be, let's be more glamorous here. Obviously, this is my first time being in the US for the full like presidential cycle. And it's, extru- first of all, it's extremely long. It's, it's fascinating compared <laughs> to Europe. It's a long ass cycle that these Americans have. But watched a couple of the debates and I swear every single debate, I was watching it cringing. Even though I enjoyed watching it and these are smart people, it just, le- I was left wondering what the hell is happening? Like, this is, this is ridiculous. They also, I'm looking at children, like spitting on each other and screaming at each other. It makes no sense. And I wouldn't elect any of you right now looking at this. And I know there's a little bit of this in Europe, but it, this, it's not sensationalism, but it is this, it becomes very childish and very finger pointery. And you said this, you're lying here. Curious what your, I mean, we don't need to dive into it too much, but curious on your, your take here, someone who's, who's seen both sides, you know, seen this in Europe and seen this in America. Like, is this what we can expect from every debate? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Which Tuning is out. 
<laughs> which is is sad to say and i think to your point tony of a, a long cycle like yeah it is it is a three and a half year campaign truly yeah truly like yeah. presidential elections come up every four years you have about six months of downtime if you're going to run for office and you're not at you know actually wow. currently sitting president of downtime to not actually have to think about your campaign and there's a thousand reasons why right? this is a much larger geographic yep. space than a UK, a France, whatever. Yeah. And, and I so can't physically- help, by the way, when yeah. you say that, to, I just, I remember working at Nation Builder and working with French presidential candidates who would uh, quite honestly rock up four months before the election and go, yep, so I'm running and I'm going to need some software and I'm going to need my campaigning tools. And I'm going to, and I'm just like, but the election's in four months, which always made me laugh just like hey you're, you're, you know you're doing this a little bit late in the game of trying to get your your, your campaign tool set and, and everything and infrastructure up and running but it, I it's just like such a stark contrast to what you're saying which is you have six months downtown and probably in that six months you're already planning on what your tech infrastructure looks like and your campaign infrastructure is going to look like and then you've got three and a half months of actual campaigning which is wild oh yeah like and obviously this is the presidential, right? Like if yeah. you get down into gubernatorial, mayoral, whatever, there's a smaller like lead, but yeah. it's still much larger. And I know in the UK and this, I'm frosty on this. So please correct me here, Tony, but like there's an actual time period at which you can legally, legally. campaign. Yeah. yeah. That's, that it does not exist. <laughs> That's interesting because you're right. There's like the, there's a legal time frame during which you can campaign. And again, Europe's different, 28 different markets. Well, 27 now, but. Though this is never going to not get fun saying that 27 different markets plus the UK that have different rules and different regulations, but there's a whole thing. And we'll talk about this at a later stage, but around also like, um, getting donations. Um, yeah. there's also how much you're legally allowed to collect in donations and during what time period too. So there's Which so much changes there. the game. <laughs> like the ability to be able to fundraise for three years right? Prior yeah. to a year of your elect, the actual year of your election. Like if we yeah. want to come full circle here to talk about the debate that yeah. you were just referencing, Elizabeth Warren uh, has hit 12 million in 48 hours. She hit $12 million in 48 hours in fundraising after the first debate with Mike Bloomberg that aired late earlier this month. And the debate, the, the sensationalization that you just, you named, right? Like when you said it wasn't yeah. that, it is that, right? In my opinion, because yeah. you come to this debate stage to get name recognition. Like think of it from a brand, right? Like you yeah. as a candidate, you're a brand and people, you need to be a household name. And the tidbits, like the pieces of information that are like, oh, did you hear Elizabeth Warren like completely flawed Mike Bloomberg? That is a conversation that will be had versus oh my God, did you hear Elizabeth Warren talking about how she was actually going to balance the books on having free healthcare, like healthcare for all as a concept? That's not exciting, right? We're in this like clickbait world where you look at the general populace in the United States and there's what, 20%? That's even high turnout on a presidential election across the country. It sounds like it's both a mixture of any publicity is good publicity. So, and if that publicity is driven by sensationalist headlines, which there's a whole debate to be had around the role of the media in helping that cycle with all of that. Well, and coverage as a whole, like Tony, like we've seen, there's been a whole host of different analytics on how much coverage have women received over men in this particular cycle. 
How much airtime have those people received? Exactly. Headlines have they received? And is there a media bias, right? Like, did that impact Hillary Clinton because there was a media bias, right? What is that whole body of work is so important. And I think the other thing we have to think about here, Tony, is when our sitting president is referencing (laughs) TV ratings as a whole, as, as a, as a standard for what is a good candidate. The, the first, the, you know, 20 person Dem debate yeah. had very low TV ratings. It was also nine months ago now. Yeah. And he came out about like, Oh, my sec, my, uh, secretary of state would get higher ratings than the Dem debate last night. Really? And then when Bloomberg came out, he did a massive rally. I think it was in yeah. Colorado or somewhere afterwards. And he's like, well, the Dem debate finally got 31 million in ratings. I guess Bloomberg's helping them out a little bit. I'm going to beat them, the small man. That's our sitting president. Yeah. It's making like clickbait conversations around what's happening and what should be a really important policy conversation of who's going to lead the United States in 2020. It's so interesting to hear you say that because first of all, it's demoralizing as hell, but put that aside. I had this back in 2015, 2016, actually as well in 2017, realizing in Europe that all of the candidates were getting very giddy about the gimmicks of the the campaigns that they were running. So how many followers they had on Twitter and were they doing a Facebook Live? And I had this sort of nagging voice at the back of my brain of, oh, is this what's to come that politics has, politics campaigns and election has become more about the gimmicks and the t- whether it's the software being used, the tools being used, the social media accounts being used now, uh, the ratings and the views more than the actual policies themselves. And- Absolutely. Like if I think back to one of the mayoral campaigns that I was doing, I was a field director on in training my field organizers on policy was yeah. a massive part of what we did because yeah. we wanted them to go to the door knowledgeable to our undecided audiences yeah. and be able to speak to the impact and the policy that you're going to have yeah. if you elect this mayor right like that was a massive piece of it it's a smaller scale 100% like a very very small scale in comparison to a presidential but the policy like training and language is less relevant mm-hmm. in a presidential than it is in a mayoral and like there's a thousand reasons for that all politics is local there's an easier digestible way for volunteers to be able to translate what policy impacts will have at a local level yeah, than there is at a federal level. level. Like there's a lot of also ambiguousness around will they actually be able to get through these five things that they've outlined? And I think we, for me personally, I'd like to see a shift in the presidential debates in the US to a more policy centric conversation yeah. versus a my hair's shinier than yours, right? Like which is where we totally. are. Yep. yep. Fascinating. Well, thanks for sharing all of that, Sorsha. I have a sneaky feeling that Tony's question, help Sorsha, help me understand what the hell is going on, might become a recurring segment here. And um, thank you for sharing your knowledge. Absolutely. We will definitely have more of the politics conversations and what's happening as we go throughout 2020. So excited to, to dig in more. For the super fans, also known as my mum and dad, thanks for staying with (laughs) us right through the end and appreciate it. If you would like to, follow us along at www.unapologeticwomen.co, even though I already know you know that and you've got it bookmarked.